Hey listeners, the Center for Primary Care is holding a one-day workshop called Innovating for Rural and Urban Underserved Populations on December 5th in Chicago. The program is case-based and interactive, focusing on strategies for community engagement, as well as novel approaches to caring for patients with complex health and social needs. A full description of the program can be found at info.primarycare.hms.harvard.edu. There is a discount early bird registration price for this event, which expires on November 1st. Group discounts are also available. If you have any questions, contact Carolyn Barnaby at carolyn underscore barnaby at hms.harvard.edu. I think leadership's job is to make sure that the direction is clear um, and provide the necessary resources and support so that it's, the team can recognize where they are now. But the work of figuring out how to get from here to there, that really should be the team's work. Welcome to Review Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Thomas Kim, and that was the voice of Pat Lee talking about the importance of teams in operationalizing and directing rapid cycle improvement. Uh, this is part two of my conversation with Pat Lee and Landry Fagan, and they're talking about their experience at the Lynn Community Health Center in Massachusetts building a team that they call the Sunflower Team that provides full-spectrum family medicine care, including medication-assisted treatment for opioid dependency during prenatal care. Uh, If you haven't listened to part one yet from last week, I highly encourage you to. Uh, It lays down kind of the basics of how Sunflower Team is working and what the impetus was for forming that team. So we're going to jump right back into it. Uh, The Sunflower team model was fascinating to us at Review Systems, uh, and it was highlighted at the uh, Center for Primary Care's Advancing Teams program. You both invested a lot of kind of time and energy up front uh, in establishing what the team would be doing, what they'd be trying to accomplish, uh, writing out mission and aim statements. So, uh, so why was that valuable? Why, why, why did that? Why did you have to start there? The nature of creating a team that's able to reach its fullest potential, you know, it's a lot about understanding what people need to come together, take risks, and do meaningful work, even when the path ahead is unclear or challenging. And so, um, there's actually a, um, you know, a, a thinker um, who helped start the movement for quality in healthcare. His name is Avidis Donabedian. And on his deathbed, um, he gave an interview, or nearly on his deathbed, he gave an interview um, in which he was quoted as saying, the secret of quality is love. And you can have the systems and the processes, and those are all uh, useful, um, but not sufficient. Um, it's really about understanding um, uh, this human element about relationships um, and meaning. Um, and how we interact with each other, that you really get to the sort of secret sauce. And so um, I think that's about um, putting in the time to really make it understood that you really care about each other, uh, that as a, you know, as a, um, a leader sponsor, for example, that you know, uh, I was deeply interested in Landry. Uh, Landry was the seed of the team. I wanted to get to know her. We set up time together. 
months before the team actually launched um, to listen, as we've done today, to listen to the seed of the idea and where our passion was, um, and then begin to um, create a map in my mind of um, what Landry needed to do next in order to be able to crystallize that vision and lead her team. Um, and, and along the way, have fun um, and, uh, and, and really get to that place where the level of trust was really high, um, I think, um, out of the gates. And, and then together, Landry and I did that with other team members um, who we brought on board. So creating an atmosphere of deep trust um, and care, I think, is the most important first step. Um, once you have that in place, then the team really only needs three things to, to achieve greatness, uh, but those three things are hard. So the first thing is a team has to know where it's going. Um, the second is the team has to know where it is now. Uh, the third is the team needs to know how it will navigate that uncertain territory between where it is now and where it's going. Um, so easy to say, hard to do. You know, um, We probably spent the first, um, I don't know, Andrew, what do you think, maybe the first couple months, really, um, coming back again and again to what are we really trying to accomplish? Why is that important? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to our patients? What does it mean to us? Um, how can we communicate that in words or in a visual in a way that really resonates? You know, it doesn't matter how sort of sexy or clean it looks on a poster, but does it speak to us? Does it really motivate us? Do we understand what it means? Um, so I, I don't know how many times we iterated it, but we went back again and again. I think you guys are ready to throw me out of the room. <laughs> You're like, why? Why do you keep nagging us about this? I think... Um I was pretty lucky in the very beginning to have a like-minded behavioral health lead on our team. And it was very clear to us what we wanted to accomplish, so we just wanted to work. And what I think Pat was really good was bringing us back to and the ATP grant. I do want to highlight the time that we earned from the clinic with the Advancing Teams grant that gave us the bandwidth to really think about our goals. But what PAC really pushed us to do was articulate in words and vision what it would look like to create a safe space where every patient could come at any stage of their lives and in recovery. And as we recruited providers and continued to develop to continually come back to the this vision, team vision, uh, revise our aim statement, and work through things like our theory of change and why uh, this work is valuable. That in in treating pregnant women, we're hoping to get as upstream as we can in the crisis and sort of break the intergenerational cycle of addiction that we see play out over the whole country at this point. And that that was sort of core to our vision. And without um, the time and Pat's dogged persistence and patience, I think we might not have been able to crystallize our team uh, mission and and help every team member get on board. I think we're probably speaking to an audience of, of people who are in established teams and aren't looking to form a new team. And it's it's sometimes hard to break down the... Um, the vision that people have of addiction and the fear of treating addicts. And there's some deep-seated real concerns. And I think getting 
having the time to meet as a team and really address it out in the open, out in the light, what all the concerns are, helps the entire team share this this mission and really create a safe space from the front desk all the way through the lab in terms of these patients not meeting any type of, of resistance to change and recovery. Yeah. You know, if I could build on that and just reflect uh, on, on what I think um, you led there, or you co-led there with your, with your colleagues in Sunflower, the, the process itself of talking about what mattered to each of you and coming up with a shared language for what you would do and how it would, how it would create you know, a different reality for your patients. That process itself helped form the team. It helps create those bonds, helps create the trust. Um, so it has a really key um, role in actually creating the conditions for a team to work together. But it actually has a second role, too, uh, which is once, once it's clear, once it's established, it actually provides a... Um, a basis for an experiment, you know, in constant improvement, which is to say this is what we think we want to do, this is our target. Um, and then um, by looking at what was actually occurring each day or each week, you could compare it to that target and ask the question, you know, what's, what's preventing us from working that way? You know, why, why isn't what we're doing now that? Um, and uh, which of those barriers do we... Um, need to go after next, which one seems to be the biggest obstacle between, you know, the care our patients are getting now or the way their team's interacting now and the way they need to interact. You know, what's the target? What's our actual and and how do we close the gap? And so um, the power of a of a target condition like that, of a vision, is that it actually sets up the necessary conditions for learning and improvement. And so, uh, so that's one. The, you know, the where are you now is a, is a pretty simple question on the face of it, but the challenge that teams often run into is, um, you know, there can be a lot of sitting around the table and hypothesizing about where we think we might be now, and a lot of the words that you hear on the table are, you know, are, are those sort of conditional, hmm, maybe, I'm not sure, could be, should be, um, rather than is. You know, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've watched that happen. And so, um, you know, part of, the, part of the coaching of the Sunflower team is to help us get closer to the work itself to sort of figure out how it was exactly that we were um, – you know, engaging patients, how we were getting them into the interdisciplinary care, how we were screening and deciding exactly what we count as a year and those appropriate or inappropriate, do we agree? You know, getting down to the detail level of the work is really important to understand where you are now. The thing about the urine specifically, and there were other examples of that, that we all had different ideas about what recovery looked like. And if we're going to be backing each other up and, and supporting each other and supporting our patients, we needed to all share in a vision of what, what an appropriate urine was, what recovery looks like, what our goals are. And I think you're, you're absolutely right that getting down to those nitty-gritty care plans for patients so that when a patient would see a team member and we're a team, and while, while patients mostly see their primary care provider, having a team allows people to take vacation and live their own personal lives, but it doesn't have to be totally uh, dependent on one person. And that's sort of the beauty of the team in a lot of ways is that we share that vision now and that we don't feel any hesitation in having patients see our colleagues. Those are the first two, you know, where are we going, where are we now? And then the final key piece is how do we get 
from here to there? How do we navigate the uncertain territory? Because you, you know, if you could draw a straight line from where you were not to where you're going, you probably didn't really, you know, outline a challenge or a vision that, that got you very far. You know, for most meaningful um, work, um, you know, the place you're aiming for is a little bit over the horizon. You know, you just don't know how to get there. And so how do you make your way through that uncertainty? Um, and you know, that's where the, uh, the plan, do, check, adjust cycle, the PDCA cycle really comes in. And, you know, the way that it um, sometimes is done is, um, you know, sort of in a, a bit of a vacuum. You know, what, what could you do um, now based on the problems you see now versus what do you need to do? You know, once you know where you're going and where you are and what's in the way, the thing that's in the way, now that's what you need to solve. You need to open up that obstacle. You need to get over that hurdle. Uh, and so that becomes the target um, of what you're trying to unpack, figure out why it's there, and then outline an experiment. You know, tomorrow, next week, we're going to try this. Um, another key way that the, the PDCA cycle isn't always done um, fully is that once you decide you're going to try something, you should... You should state your hypothesis. You know, what do I think is going to happen um, when we do that? Because a lot of times um, we learn something really important by comparing what actually happened to what we thought was going to happen. So, um, you know, you should state your hypothesis, then run the experiment, and know when you're going to check, like next week or tomorrow, and come back and see, well, what actually happened and what can I learn from the difference um, between what I expected and what happened, and then based on that, what am I going to do next? And that constant iteration um, is also the way that um, we can develop capability for improvement. So one of the key goals at the leadership level was to empower Landry, um, you know, and both Jennifer's on our team and others to really get better at doing this kind of improvement work so that they could fish for themselves um, as we move forward. Um, and so the PDCA is really a critical way that I get to, well, I was able to help understand what the team was thinking, um, and they were able to see um, how, uh, what distance there was between what they thought would happen and what actually happened. Um, I don't know if there are examples that come to mind, Landry, from the PDCA work that you guys did. I remember in the beginning we felt kind of overwhelmed with the PDCA and needed, and I think a lot of providers might feel that way, that it's hard to measure that have actual numbers for every improvement. And one of our most powerful PDCAs was our first one, which was getting part-time case management support from the OB clinic. Because we learned that a lot of our women who were exclusively seeing our clinic for prenatal care were missing out on some of the, the basics of pregnancy and the education piece that the, the regular OB patients were getting. And it took a lot of iteration. And the way it was hard to measure success, but we were able to, in terms of number of women engaged with a case manager, because that went from zero to something almost immediately. And the value, while not, well, much more subjective and not numerical, uh, was having that support person to go to for more routine issues like a patient who needed a car seat or a crib. And if you look um, looked at patients with addiction who were struggling, um, the lack of a car seat or crib was often used against their, them in the sense that they weren't didn't have capacity to parent or have custody of their children. Whereas that wouldn't be the case in, with a patient who was 
was poor or uninsured and just needed a car seat or a crib. And it was a real opportunity to provide the same level of care for our addiction patients that was being provided for other patients. And I think um, get it, it is really important to measure, and I don't want to minimize the value of measurement because I think just keeping track of all these women and keeping statistics on their um, adequacy of prenatal care, their appropriate urine drug screens, and the infant vaccination rates has been huge for us. I think just making little changes and reflecting back as a team on whether or not that change felt good or improved our flow, those subjective findings were also very helpful and motivating. Mm -hmm. If it's okay, Andrea, you know, if I could, if I could reflect back on that first PDCA, um, there was some really interesting learning that occurred. You know, if if, uh, if I remember correctly, the first um, the first plan that you had was to email um, the relevant team leaders and ask for the case manager support, with the expectation that they would say yes. You know, and <laughs> you, would, <laughs> you would suddenly have the hours you needed. Good to have a hypothesis. Yeah, it was a hypothesis. You know, um, and it didn't. It didn't happen just like that, um, and uh, I think your next test to change might have been, well, why don't we sit down together and talk through the why and, uh, and explore options, and that worked much better. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I watched, you know, you adjust your approach um, over the you know, couple years we were working together um, so that, you know, uh, much later on as you were thinking about the issue of how to create a smooth handoff of a baby from the hospital to the clinic, for example, um, mm-hmm. you, know, you approached that in an entirely different way. And um, I think that PDCA learning um, may have helped make that make those the difference between your hypothesis and the actual result visible and, and maybe maybe helped accelerate that learning um, of how to actually coordinate things, how to actually get things done um, in a resource-constrained, you know, um, mission-driven organization like Lynn. I feel like I've seen, you know, models of change in other settings where it's just, you know, leadership writes exactly what they think is should happen and then, you know, tells the team members you're going to do and act a certain way like why is that why does that create opportunity for failure because um, yeah, I, I do want to like talk a little bit about why uh, a structure framework with PDCA, PDCA is, is better than than tra- kind of traditional change uh, management approaches yeah I think leadership's job is to make sure that the direction is clear um, and provide the necessary resources and support so that it's, the team can recognize where they are now. But the work of figuring out how to get from here to there, that really should be the team's work. Um, the team knows best um, what the actual problems are. They do the work every day. And, um, you know, the ownership uh, and, the, and the satisfaction of creatively solving a problem and getting a positive and meaningful result um, has a um, you know, huge sort of updraft effect in lifting the team uh, up as it, as it moves along. Um, to deprive uh, someone of that opportunity to learn is actually, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's potentially disrespectful as a leader. Um, but similarly, to leave them stranded without a sense of direction, without the supports they need, is also abdicating the responsibility. So, had it sort of uh, described to me as a tight, loose, tight. Uh, you know, it should be tight on shared 
uh, objective. You should be tight on um, current performance, and you should be loose or, or basically you know, follow the team's lead around um, how they're going to close the distance between where they are now and where they need to be. There's also a mindset issue here for leadership. You know, there could be one mindset that says, you know, the, the bridges are burning, um, we're, you know, we're under the gun, we need to deliver the results at all costs, just put out the fire, deliver the result. Um, and, it, you know, we have to, there's perfect, uh, perfectly legitimate reasons why we have to focus on our performance. But there's other mindset mm-hmm. that say, you know, what, what, we re- what we're really doing here is we are building great teams. You know, um, there's a learning result. Uh, there's a relationship outcome, uh, and uh, and therefore, um, whenever we can, we actually want to create the conditions for maximum learning, and that's how we win. Not just now by using a scientific process like PDCA to navigate that uncertain territory really efficiently, uh, but it's also how we win in the future. Um, because you know, even to take sunflower as a single example, um, the the capability that that um, Landry, Jen, and Jen developed for improvement over the two years was tremendous, you know, and the amount of um, investment that was needed from our very limited, uh, you know, improvement improvement coaches, for example, was much less. Uh, and now it's a team that continues to um, really outperform uh, and bring in, uh, you know, exciting new grants, and, and uh, that's how the sort of virtuous cycle continues. So at a leadership level, there's a need to ask the mindset question, are we trying to grow our people to compete now and in the future, or are we just trying to put out the fires now and get the results at all costs? Uh, and if it's the first, um, then dictating the method and not just the necessity um, is counterproductive um, and actually um, stifles that growth and engagement. Um, so just wanted to, to share that point. I do want to back like way up for a second because I don't want this point to have been lost. Um, uh, so Pat, you had you had um, kind of referenced uh, Don Obedian's quote about the secret the secret of quality being love, uh, and investing the time up front to um, in each other and team members and and talking out what matters to folks in the team. And I I was hoping could we spell out a little bit like what does that look like? I, I I'm trying to understand Pat, when you look at a meeting agenda you're creating for that time like uh, like how do you uh, get towards a team that loves each other <laughs> so let me let me <laughs> offer first uh, an operational definition of love that one of my mentors taught me um, so love is the quality of attention that we choose to give the quality of attention that we choose to give. And so what we're really trying to do is set up a situation where all of us really want to engage. We're, we're fully present. And we are giving each other our full attention. We're really listening to each other. And we're willing to take some risks uh, and say something that might not be right because we know that together um, all of our minds are uh, smarter than any one of us separately. You know, we've, we've, we've moved in that team mindset. And so... Um, you know, love is almost like the, the approach that one takes in order to invite um, trust. Now, uh, as a leader, uh, the other sort of the other sort of mindset that I take into a new team is um, what I learned from uh, Tony Bright, who is the president of the Carnegie Foundation. He he once said that um, if you want to create relational trust. Um, it is incumbent upon those with more power in the hierarchy to reduce the vulnerability 
of those with less power in the hierarchy. Uh, so what does that look like? You know, that, that looks like me always being on a first-name basis. You know, I sit down. Um, I listen. I acknowledge my own mistakes in learning. Um, I um, you know, validate what I hear from others. Um, uh, I also take the risk of teaching um, when the moment comes up. You know, I try to, I try to help coach and teach and give someone the chance to um, both fail in a, in a safe way and also be successful and feel um, really good about that success. Um, Taking it a step further, um, sometimes we deliberately create moments for um, what I've called diastole. So if systole is when the heart is squeezing but the coronaries are uh, not flowing because the pressure is too great, diastole is when the chamber fills for the next round but also the heart itself is nourished and you know, 10,000 times a day beat to beat our hearts alternate systole and diastole. And if they don't, they fail and we die. You know, during the work cycle of the day, we find ourselves constantly in systole, and a little bit of diastole during the work cycle is actually part of the work once you accept that the relationships and the learning are the most important thing we're really doing here. Um, and so diastole may look like us taking the time to reflect on an amazing moment with one of our patients or an awful moment with one of our patients and really listening to each other and, and, and soaking in the meaning of the work that we do. Or it may look like the party that you guys were kind of to invite me to, uh, Landry, where you, you made uh, air, air plant uh, ornaments together, um, you know, and we had some fun and uh, really connected offline. Um, it's it's recognizing that those things that create warmth and trust and safety um, are um, the foundational elements of the success of a team over the long term, um, and to and to and to build those in uh, and value those things with time and resources um, and attention. As a, I, I want to tag along with that. I think that's a really good high level view, and the nitty gritty. As a team team lead, I think, and a mentor to the newer physicians, some of the ways that I implemented that, I think it was very hard for certain new providers who were feeling stressed right out of residency, maybe this was their first addiction patient, to be um, short maybe with the medical assistance. And I think helping them see the power differential was a really important piece and breaking that down. So including the medical assistants and the, and the front desk as much as possible in all of our meetings, particularly our meetings about vision, and even some meetings that were effectively CME, sort of reviewing the basics of identifying preeclampsia and the importance of screening for proteinuria. I think that gave the medical assistants that background knowledge to value the work that they're doing as opposed to getting bogged down by, oh, I have to collect another urine on this patient. And mm. um, mentoring new providers and being grateful to the assistants. You know, some would sometimes come with the attitude of, well, that's their job. Well, mm. it's also important to show any, any person in any job how much they're appreciated and that would grow and grow. Uh, identifying the barriers that some of our medical assistants had to work, you know, their child care responsibilities, um, their home life, really seeing, seeing all the staff as their whole human and their whole lives and 
asking, checking in, making sure things are okay, knowing that a medical assistant has a sick child and trying to accommodate that as much as possible. Um, because you want people to feel safe at work, to share their struggles. And also learning that maybe, oh, because this is so stressful for this medical assistant, on these certain days of the week, they have to leave at X time to get their child, but they could put in other hours on this other day. Just knowing that would open the conversation to offering a slightly different modified schedule that would work really well for the team and adjusting the team hours around that. And then that medical assistant feels valued and that and respected and that their other requirements for their lives are of equal value to everyone on the team. I think those those types of things can build love. And incorporating the medical assistants and the front desk in the conversations about our aim and vision were incredibly powerful because, especially when we got a new front desk, some of our, our staff didn't even really know what we were doing, like didn't really feel like this team was any different than any other team. And it helped them appreciate the need to de-escalate in the waiting room when patients would be angry or helps them appreciate how our team operates a little bit more permissively, perhaps, in terms of patients dropping in. You know, we would never turn away a pregnant woman because they were late. We would continually counsel them on showing up for visits on time, but they're never going to be turned away, right? Or an infant, never going to be turned away. And I think coming to the meetings helps them see the importance of of that type of care. It's a difference between saying, you know, um, you matter because of what you can do versus you matter. You know, you really matter. You, you as a person, as a human being with uh, dreams and hopes and anxieties and challenges and learning opportunities and so forth, you really matter. And whatever it takes to, to communicate that message authentically so it's truly felt and someone feels truly included that they, they're important and then they're, then they're on the team and then the rest falls away and you can focus on the problem together. How did you guys interact with uh, other folks who interact and, and take care of the patient that aren't on the Sunflower team? I'm thinking of um, the labor floor, the, the emergency room, the, the neonatologist, um, other addiction treatment centers, um, how did that work and, and uh, were there any challenges? As a family physician who rounds in a hospital, it was definitely easier to reach out to the director of neonatology, but thankfully uh, our director of neonatology had really come online with supporting addiction treatment, uh, having witnessed so many different uh, babies with NAS and seeing how the withdrawal from Suboxone is much shorter, um, less traumatic, and uh, that these women were coming in much more alert and engaged. Um, she really supported the formation of our team. But I think for any uh, primary care provider, even if they're not in the hospital, just reaching out to the inpatient side. I know we've also tried to develop a relationship with the emergency room to get a quick start for Suboxone for all uh, patients suffering from addiction and trying to develop the really carving out some time to develop those relationships pays off in the long run. Um, developing a relationship with the hospitalists who are treating patients so that when there's a 
change in the phase of care or a transition, uh, patient is not lost. And that that communication allows you to know that they were compliant on the other side of the care and just seamlessly continue to treat them. I think I think we're all capable of that. Um, these patients often cycle through emergency rooms and hospitals, and the stronger that relationship can be, the better uh, we can be at keeping patients out of the hospital. You know, and if I could just build on that, um, I think there's at least three areas where the providers in different areas have a lot of alignment. One is that these are incredibly vulnerable patients, and it, it feels good to give them much better care. Um, and uh, sharing that joy um, can be a place of, of really important connection. Um, the second is that the professional collaborations often feel really good. You know, um, the overlap um, for areas where folks may not have collaborated before, but the overlap, uh, you know, for an OB provider who has seen um, women with addiction come through again and again, it felt a little helpless, you know, and, and now know that they have a colleague on the outpatient side who they can partner with. Um, those relationships can be a powerful, sense, uh, you know, area of, of uh, common cause that can that can begin to make the collaboration work. And the third is that depending on the context of how a system is um, reimbursed for the care, um, the more um, the system is rewarded for um, keeping patients healthy and preventing high-cost downstream care um, through global payments or um, population health uh, level incentives, um, then this care is by far more effective in uh, producing better care at lower cost. Uh, so um, that's something that, uh, that could certainly be explored, and there would be, a, I would suspect, a strong return on investment in this high-risk population um, uh, versus in the that context. Okay, uh, Landry, Pat, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast. Thank you so much. Alright, you've been listening to Review Systems. I want to thank one more time Pat and Landry for taking the time out to join us on the program. Uh, we do love your feedback, so please drop us a line at contact at rospod.org or find us on Twitter at rospodcast uh, or on Facebook at Review Systems. Uh, and of course, please leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcast that makes it easier for other new listeners to find us. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.